As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. It is a foundational belief of our Christian faith that life is founded upon the bedrock of our participation within scripture and tradition. Yet how many of us can say that we have an understanding of what these two terms mean regarding the way that we live our lives? How many of us can say that we've seriously read the scriptures and wrestle alongside those who have devoted their lives to understanding the depth of their meaning? And ultimately, what do these texts written over 2,000 years ago have to say to us living in the 21st century? These, among many others, are the questions that we will be wrestling with in this weekly Bible study. My name is Nick Botsolis, and I invite all of you to join our St. John the Baptist community as we set out to meet Christ in the scriptures. And by wrestling with these texts and searching for their meaning in our life, it is my hope that we, like John the Baptist and all of the saints who have come before us, may continue to make his path straight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another session of our St. John the Baptist Bible Study, Make His Path Straight. My name is Nick Botsolis, and once again, I'm happy to have you all here with me. So today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Last week, we finished the Gospel according to St. Luke, and now, before we begin the Acts of the Apostles, I think it's fitting to spend some time reflecting on what we've just read within the Gospel account of St. Luke. We've spent about seven months, six months, going through his gospel narrative very slowly and meticulously. And I think for the sake of reflection, I would like to go over some of the key themes that have stuck out to me, at least, from St. Luke's account of the gospel before we move on. Part of my reasoning for this is because as we go into the Acts of the Apostles, we're hitting volume two of St. Luke's works. And similar themes that we've seen throughout the entirety of St. Luke's account of the Gospel will continue within the Acts of the Apostles. So today what I want to do is talk about some of those themes, reflect on where we've been, and kind of look forward to where we're going. And I think, first and foremost, we need to look at some unique characteristics of St. Luke's account of the Gospel. For instance, with the infancy narrative of Jesus, we see a lot of detail that are lacking within St. Matthew's gospel in particular. St. Matthew has the only gospel narrative out of the synoptics in addition to St. Luke, which contains an infancy narrative. And yet what we see within St. Luke's infancy narrative is an emphasis on the lineage of John the Baptist. There's this emphasis of how John has come to prepare the way for the Lord to make his path straight. He's the voice, the one who's crying out in the wilderness, as we hear from that quote in Isaiah. And so we see through Zechariah and Elizabeth, salvation is first promised to humanity. And then we see within the greeting of Mary with the Archangel Gabriel, how salvation enters into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Because through Mary's willing participation within salvation history, we see her become what we know as the new Eve. Because it's through Eve's actions of the eating of the fruit 
that she says ultimately no to the will of God. Yet it's within Mary's actions of referring to herself as the handmaiden or slave of the Lord and allowing for Christ to dwell in her that we see that initial no from Eve flipped on its head and replaced with an ultimate yes. It's in Mary, again, if we go all the way back to our reflection a couple of months ago, who we know to be a girl of 12 or 13 years of age, it's through the yes of this seemingly small child that ultimately salvation enters into the world. And I think with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the Most Holy Theotokos, Mary, in, in the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel account, we see the foundation laid for us as to how we are supposed to be participants within salvation history. Because all three of these characters are participants. They're not the driving factor. Mary herself says yes to the will of the Lord. The Lord is the one who is acting the entire time. Rather, she's submitting her will to his. We see the same with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Elizabeth receives the Theotokos when she presents herself with the glad tidings of Christ being within her. And yet, we see all of these characters continue to willingly participate in what is unfolding in front of them. And this kind of paints the picture of how salvation history plays out. Because we have free will. And it highlights that free will. Because when we see Mary actively participate in the will of the Lord, we see that she has a choice. She can reject the will of the Lord. Yet it's out of love that she willingly submits herself to his will. And as we're trying to figure out, okay, well, what is it that we're supposed to do with our lives? We need to look at the examples of these individuals because there's a lot of risk that came into play for all of them. For Mary, we know that she's not married yet. Her, She's betrothed to Joseph, yet they're not yet wed. And so if she was to be found pregnant, well, what's the end result for her? Well, the end result for her would be death. The end result for her within that culture would not be living a fruitful life. And yet, knowing this reality, she still, in total faith to the Lord, participates in his will. We see the same thing with Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're both old in age, and yet when they receive the news that Elizabeth will bear a son, his name will be John, they receive this news joyfully. And everything that plays out down to the naming of St. John the Baptist goes according to how it's laid out, going according to how it's prophesied that it is to take place. So when we're dealing with prophecy, when we're dealing with a lot of these realities as we see them within the scriptures, we need to realize that they're not fortune-telling. They're not some articulation of how the future is supposed to play out. Because again, all of these characters have free will in the same way that we do. However, it's through their willing participation 
that we see the narrative continue to unfold, leading ultimately to the person of Jesus Christ when he begins his ministry. Because we need to remember before John ends his ministry, within the third chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, <clears throat> we hear around verse 5, after the saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We hear this prophecy that unfolds throughout the entirety of St. Luke's Gospel. And we continued to bring this up over and over again as we saw it, but I think it's important to stress it here. Because the passage from Isaiah is continued. And we hear in verse 5 of chapter 3, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this was in reference to Christ, Jesus the Christ, who is coming. Because at the end of chapter 3, we see the baptism of Jesus and the genealogy that stretches all the way back to Adam, and ultimately Adam being the son of God. And yet, in hearing every valley shall be filled, well, what do we hear? Well, that which is low shall be brought up to an even place. And what do we hear in with every mountain and hill shall be brought low? Well, we hear that all which is elevated shall be brought to the similar level as the valley that's been filled in. Same thing with the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. Christ in his coming and bringing the messianic age and messianic kingdom as we've talked about is granting equilibrium into the world those who have elevated themselves are going to be brought down to the same level in him as those who were initially lowered and we saw this all throughout the gospel where those who are ill infirm brought low in any way were elevated in christ <clears throat> It's the same thing with those who elevate themselves, as we saw with the leaders of the people. Those who elevated themselves are brought to the same level, whether they realize it or not and whether they're accepting it or not. And so in Christ, what we see in this prophecy is that all humanity is brought to the same level because ultimately we're being compared to the one who is beyond us, the ideal man. And the reason why Jesus himself is the ideal man is because he's the God-man. He's both God and man, fully God and fully man. And through participating in our humanity, fully by taking on our humanity, what do we see? Well, we see that all of humanity and our experience of being human is transfigured. We see that the low are brought into his embrace. And we see that those who elevate themselves are also brought to the same level. But ultimately, what's Christ doing? Well, Christ, through his ministry, as we saw, is not only bringing us all to the same level, but then he's calling us to something higher. He's calling us towards the kingdom of the Father. So it's from coming to the similar level that we're then being elevated, and we're then having the goalposts raised even higher for us. And yet, this might seem like an impossible task. It may seem like he's calling us to something that is greater than us and that we could never achieve, period. Yet, we see 
in Christ taking on the full experience of humanity. That he is not only transfiguring the reality that he's participating in, but he's giving us a pathway to have our reality transfigured in him. We're called to co-suffer with Christ. And that's why the crucifixion is so important. Because again, as we realize, if we look at our own lives, well, what's an inevitability for every human being? Well, that inevitability is that we, at some point in life, will suffer, and ultimately, we will die. And so, if through the incarnation, we see that Christ enters into human existence, he takes flesh and dwells among us, well, what is the ultimate expression, we'll say, of that human existence. Well, it has to reveal itself in death. Why? Because we're born as Christ was. We live as Christ did. We have all of these experiences of, experiences of life as we see throughout Christ's earthly ministry. And yet, we all, at some point, experience suffering and death. And yet, what do we see happen when Christ experiences the whole of human reality, of human existence? We'll see that he transfigures it. Because when Jesus enters into death, he tramples down death by death itself. And so when he raises from the dead, that's not magic that we're seeing. Rather, what we're seeing is a transfiguration of life itself. Because death is unnatural. We were not intended to die, and yet it's through sin, it's through our missing of the mark, that death enters into the world. Because death ultimately is a separation from God. Yeah, we can also describe death as a separation of the soul from the body, because again, what is the soul? Well, it's the animating spirit of the body. And when the spirit leaves the body, the body is inanimate and decays. Yet, we see Christ returns in his resurrected body as we fast forward all the way to the end of St. Luke's account of the Gospel. We see that he still bears the scars of the suffering. And yet, we also see that he is alive and well and eating with them and in their presence, that is, the presence of his disciples. So we need to realize what St. Luke is pointing us towards. Well, St. Luke this entire time has been pointing us towards the fulfillment that comes in a life in Christ. We need to also remember the parables that St. Luke has continued to tell us. With the stress being on how we're called to be good and noble servants. Time and time again, we heard these parables of Christ come up within St. Luke's account of the Gospel, where we had bad servants and we had good servants. Yet the through line that we continue to see is this motif of service. And using the physical wealth, the goods that have been entrusted to us, to the glory of God. Because as we also mentioned during this Bible study, we're meant to use the gifts that God has entrusted to us, to his glory. Everything that has been given to us, including our very life, is a gift from God. Why? Because we can't create anything. 
we can use the materials that are within the created order to construct things, yet we can't create those materials themselves. We can't create life. And so if we can't create in the same way that God creates, well, what are we meant to do with everything that's entrusted to us? We're meant to use it to his glory. Because even though we didn't create it, it's been entrusted to us. We are called to be good stewards of it. And so if we're called to be good stewards of the whole of creation, well, what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, it looks, practically speaking, like us using everything has been entrusted to us, whether that be money, whether that be our possessions, whether that be talents. All of these things that have been entrusted to us are meant to be used to the glory of God. Because when we offer them to Christ, what we do is we allow for him to transfigure them. It's in that transfiguration that they reach their ultimate purpose and that we subsequently reach our ultimate purpose. Because ultimately, the whole of creation is aiming towards the kingdom in the same way that we are. Yet, we're the only ones as human beings who have autonomy in this process. So it's our responsibility as the good stewards of creation to take the gifts that God has given us and use them justly and ultimately offer them up so that way all may be participants in the kingdom. There's a goal that St. Luke has constantly been pointing us towards, and that goal is towards participation in the kingdom of God. Jesus, the Christ, is a messianic king. And yet, we've been called to look higher within each of the prefigurations of his messiahship. We saw in like manner to how we saw it within St. Mark's Gospel, this continued motif of quoting Daniel, and Christ referring to himself as the Son of Man. And yet, it was at the very end of St. Luke's Gospel, and as we'll see in the very beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, that we see the fulfillment of what that means. Because Jesus is then seated at the right hand of the Father. He's taken up into heaven, showing us that the kingdom which he is going to rule over is not a kingdom of this world, We've been subtly building up to that point all throughout St. Luke's Comic Gospel. And yet, the full manifestation of what that looks like doesn't take place until he ascends into heaven and the church ultimately carries on after the fact. Now, I think a final detail that we need to stress as we move on from St. Luke's Count the Gospel into the Acts of the Apostles is this reality of the ascension. Because the ascension itself is something that's been pointed towards throughout the entirety of St. Luke's account of the Gospel. The ascension is, we'll say, the capstone of the Exodus motif that we were talking about within the overall passion narrative. Because again, if we remember all the way back to the transfiguration in St. Luke's account of the Gospel, Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah on the mountain about his exodus. 
and where we saw the setting of St. Luke's account of the Passion narrative taking place, well, there's this heavy emphasis on the Passover, the exodus of Israel. And ultimately, when we see Christ pass into death, well, he leads those in the grave into eternal life. So that's where we see this motif of exodus continuing to play out. Because Christ becomes the leader, like Moses, who leads his people through the gates of death into eternal life. And this motif continues when Christ leads his disciples out as far as Bethany and then ascends into heaven. Because he's showing them this upward trajectory. And we might get a little confused whenever we think of this upward trajectory. We might ask ourselves, okay, what does this mean? Does this mean heaven is some place in the sky and we're supposed to be looking upwards because at some point we're going to be assumed into this place in the sky? Well, no, that's, we're not talking about physical space. Yet we need to understand what sacred geography is because within the context of sacred geography, well, yes, heaven is something which is upwards. It's not physically upwards, and yet it's presented as something being upward because when our head is held high, well, what are we doing? We're orienting us, ourselves towards the right things. We're upright. We're oriented in the proper direction. And yet also within sacred geography, we see when our face is turned to the ground, when we're fixated on the things of this age, as we've talked about time and time again between the motif of the Messianic age versus this age, age ruled by sin and death. Well, what do we see? We see that there's blindness. You can't see what's in front of you if you're fixated on what's beneath you. And so within the context of sacred geography, what do we see within the ascension? Well, we see that all Christians are ultimately called upwards. And what is that upwards? Well, that upward motion is a motion towards the kingdom, a motion towards Christ, towards allowing for him to fulfill the whole of our life. So we need to take account of this because if we think that, okay, well, I can sit here and look at the moral teachings of Jesus, try to live my life by them, and yet disregard the reality of him, disregard the reality of our participation in life in him, well, then we're going to be missing the mark. Because ultimately, we're called to follow after Christ. We're not called to just use him as role model. Rather, we're called to enter into a relationship with him is as we continue to orient ourselves upwards, that is, hold ourselves to the standard with which he's holding us, well, then we become worthy of being participants in his kingdom. Then we get to meet the fulfillment of all that has been promised. Because within St. Luke's account of the gospel, especially in the beginning, we saw all of these prophecies of who Jesus was. And after he offers his life for the world, life of the world, what we see is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. A turning on the head, if you will, of these concepts. 
Because the people are looking for this earthly king. The people are looking for this worldly liberator. And yet, Jesus comes to show us that we're truly being called for so much more. The liberation that we're being offered isn't the liberation of this age in terms of we're going to see it here and now. Maybe we will, but the reality is, ultimately, the liberation that we are being offered is from the bonds of this age. And yet, as St. Paul tells us, we still need to live in this age, because that's where we are. And yet, we're called not to be of this age. And that's contrasted with the leaders of the people, because how are leaders of the people, the leaders of the Jewish people, that is, seen as being confound or in servitude to the spirits of this age? But we see them so enamored with trying to keep their status that they blind themselves to who Jesus is. We see them so enamored with the various facets of their life that they refuse to change and follow after Christ. And so blindness takes place. We see a similar motif playing out with the apostles. Because the apostles, from time and time again, seem not to get it. Even to the point where Peter is so full of zeal that he tells Jesus at the Last Supper, he's willing to go and die with him. And yet, the minute that Christ is persecuted and the opportunity arises for Peter to go and die with his Lord, what happens? Well, he falls away. And yet, the difference between the leaders of the Jewish people and the apostles is that when Christ raises from the dead, what do they do? Well, as we saw last week within the final chapter of St. Luke's account of the Gospel, they return to Christ. And when they do, in particular with Peter, what do we see? Well, even though he fell away, he returns and he strengthens the brethren. And this shows us that even when we fall away, we're always called back into the body of Christ, that is the community of the church. I think the final note that we should address before concluding the short little reflection is the reality of how Christ himself has transfigured reality. We briefly touched upon this, and yet it's been very amazing to me to see how St. Luke continues to hammer home this point in his gospel narrative. Through the resurrection, we don't see Jesus raised in the same way. He's in the same body, and yet that body is transfigured, that body is transformed. He's in the presence of the apostles, and yet he's different, while still eating with them, and while being recognizable to them. And in this emphasis on the risen Christ, what we see is the fulfillment of where we're all is if Christ is transfigured through his resurrection, well, what's that an icon of, an image of? What's well, an image of the state that we are promised in him? Because when we live a life in Christ, we're the same, 
we retain the marks of our former life. And yet, we're also different because in the way that we conduct ourselves, in the way that we live, ultimately everything is transformed, everything is transfigured. We'll carry ourselves in a different way. We'll act in a different way. We'll have more compassion towards others. All of these aspects of our life are transfigured because the reality is we gain a new context. And that new context is we see the world as the way it should truly be. We see the gifts that have been entrusted to us and we see them as gifts. We don't see them as rights in themselves. So all of our possessions, when we're living a life in, our, in life in Christ, well, what do we do with them? Well, we're called to offer them up. All the talents have been given to us. But well, what do we use them for? Well, we use them for the glory of God. And ultimately, as we gaze upward, as we orient ourselves towards life in Christ, ultimately aiming towards the kingdom, well, what do we do? Well, we end up bringing all those who are going along for that ride with us along for that ride. Because when we live the life of a Christian, what is it that we're doing? Well, ultimately, we're aiming towards Christ. But that's not something that happens in isolation. Because again, as we know, as we know the church is a body. And that body is comprised of many members. So if that's the case, we can't truly do this alone. We need to be able to do this with others. And it's going to be that example that we'll see within the Acts of the Apostles. Because the church of the first century truly believed that Christ was in their midst. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, when we look at their actions, they're not the actions of people who believe their Savior has departed from them and is no longer with them. So we may as well do a bunch of good things and anticipation for him to return. Rather, everything that they do, we'll hear, they did of one accord. Everything that they did was to the glory of God. And through all of their actions, we'll see that the Apostolic Church continued to make Christ manifest to all nations. And so as we now transition from St. Luke's account of the Gospel to his account of the Acts of the Apostles, we need to look at the example of the early church. We need to look at the example of Peter and Paul and all those who followed in Christ's footsteps. Because they're dealing with the same questions that we're dealing with. The questions of how do we live a life in Christ? The questions of how do we make Christ manifest in the world? The question of how do we take all of the gifts that have been entrusted to us and use them for his glory? And so as we move on to the Acts of the Apostles, Let's look at their example. So we can ask ourselves, sitting here in the 21st century, 
how it is that we can learn from them and apply the lessons that they learned to our life. Is we're a part of the same church, we're a part of the same body. And ultimately, we're all aiming towards the kingdom. So now, as we wrap up the gospel according to St. Luke, I just want to take a moment to thank you all for joining me in this journey. This has been a very interesting undertaking for me. St. Luke's gospel account is one of the gospel narratives that I've spent the least amount of time with before preparing my weekly notes and going through this entire Bible study with you. And now that I've gained this new context into how St. Luke thinks, it's very beautiful to see how my relationship with this great saint has continued to blossom and grow. And I pray that this Bible study has been of benefit to you in getting to know Luke the Evangelist as well. Because ultimately, as we're wrestling with this text, we're not only wrestling with the text in itself, but we're trying to get to know the individual behind the text. Yes, we're trying to get to know, love, and serve Christ through these texts, but we're also building a relationship with those who wrote these texts. So may St. Luke, as we move into the second volume of his works, continue to intercede for us and open our mind to what it is he was trying to reveal. And ultimately, may he lead us to the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So thank you all for joining me again over these past couple of months as we've wrestled with St. Luke's Count the Gospel. And remember, Everything that I've spoken of and meditated upon as we've gone through this exercise, if you will, has been my opinion. I'm trying my best to balance that opinion with as many writings of the fathers and what I believe to be the tradition of the church and as many sources as I can. But ultimately, I'm a fragile human being like everyone else is. Ultimately, there's plenty of places where I'm sure I've missed the mark and I'm sure I've misled or been misguided myself. So if I've misled any of you or given you a misconception of Christ in this gospel, I ask for your forgiveness. And it's my prayer that each and every one of you, as we've continued to go through this journey together, has gained a new appreciation for the scriptures and a new perspective of how to read them. Because ultimately, if I'm just sitting here and rambling into a microphone, well, what's the point of this? Like, I'm just dealing with my own thoughts and wrestling with those while you're all just kind of listening to me. But if this, for some reason, is inspiring you to gain a new perspective of how to read the scripture, then glory to God. And if in any way this has allowed for you to gain a deeper appreciation of how to live a life in Christ, glory to God. And if this Bible study has been any benefit whatsoever, well, then glory to God. Because I'm frail. I'm ignorant. <laughs> I'm prideful. 
I'm full of all the same vices that everyone is. And yet, through wrestling with them, and now wrestling with these texts, I hope that I've allowed for a little bit of truth to ring through. And as long as this continues to be beneficial to any of you, I promise to continue to do it. So thank you all from the bottom of my heart for coming on this journey with me. And I pray you all have good strength this weekend as we have our church's Greek festival. And I pray that we all continue to have strength as we next week begin to wrestle with the text of the Acts of the Apostles. So thank you all for listening to this session of our St. John the Baptist Bible study. Make his path straight. Until next time, I'll talk to you all later. Thank you all for listening to this session of Make His Path Straight, a St. John the Baptist Bible study. Just as a reminder, the point of this Bible study is to invite each of you to gain a deeper appreciation and understanding of the scriptures. So in the coming week, I invite you to take some time to read over the text we have just delved into, to see for yourself the depth of meaning that can be presented to us. If you're interested in the sources I'm using for the study, Links to the full list of pertinent books can be found in the description of the session. Last but not least, as we've been discussing in the Bible study, the scriptures are not separated from our lived tradition as Orthodox Christians. So if you'd like to gain a deeper understanding of what it is to participate in these texts and live a life that Christ calls us to live in the scriptures, I invite each of you listening to join our St. John the Baptist community here in Boston South End each Sunday for Orthros starting around 8.30 a.m., and the Divine Liturgy starting around 9.45 a.m. If you don't live in the Boston area, no worry. I've also linked in the bio the directory of Greek Orthodox churches as a resource so that you can find Orthodox churches near you. As always, thank you for listening, and may St. John the Forerunner give us strength as we all set out to draw near to Christ and make his path straight. Amen.